This is our final session, and um, which might be great news to some of you, disappointing to others. Did I mention I'm here too brief of a time, and we need to do this over a month, just a little hour each morning while I spend the, my winter and your summer in Australia. Um, okay, a couple of, couple of things. I want to talk about uh, breaking barriers for, uh, for church growth. Now, I told you we're, we're really we're kind of moving around pretty quickly because the talks were sort of uh, chosen on some, on some pretty different issues, some disparate issues. And so, but that's no problem at all. I mean, I'm glad to do it. But I want to talk about breaking barriers uh, for growth. Now, now, one of the things that we have to get to is a comfort level that there might be something going on at certain uh, size points that uh, cause churches to get stuck and stagnant. Now, now you say, well, just preach the gospel and love people and don't worry about that. Okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I'm okay with preach the gospel and love people. I want you to be faithful, but I also want you to be fruitful. And so, so what we've learned in kind of uh, studying church growth, um, not the movement, church growth movement, that's, that's a different thing, um, but in studying church growth is that churches tend to get stuck at certain points. Now, people have sort of said that those points um, are identifiable, and probably the most common numerical uh, stuck points are 35, 75, 125, and 200. And so those are the most common uh, stuck points. Um, that's why some churches you know, or particularly new churches, get stuck at 35 and can't move beyond that. The typical church in Australia is actually about 75 in attendance. Okay, that's important that you don't miss that, right? The typical church is not the 200, 300, whatever. The typical church is somewhere between 75 and 100 people, but under 100 in attendance. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that has to do with how people sort of relate to one another in community. Okay, so, so and I'm going to use this room as an example in just a bit. Uh, 125 is the next barrier. There's a reason for that. The most common reason is leadership issues. Uh, pastors, when you pass 125, you can't, you can't continue that, that process without creating systems rather than all relationship. And so what I want to do, and then 200 is, is, is a whole other beast, and we'll get to those as we kind of walk through these. So what I want to do is I want to talk about some, some principles. We didn't get to them all in Sydney, and so Scott has insisted that I get to them all here. So I hope you pack dinner, and, uh, and we'll go through those. Is dinner the evening meal? Yeah, there's, there's no questions. What? Which numbers? Yeah. Oh, there's always questions from Australians. Uh, here, yeah, it's 35 uh, total attendance, babies, people, uh, pregnant women twice, you know, because you're a pastor, uh, and it's everybody. So it's attendance. Every, so attendance, it's a good question. Um, so 35, 75, 125, and 200. So let's, let's kind of walk through them. It's afternoon, so our blood sugar's a little low. You just had lunch, but we're going to work this anyway. First of all, I want to remind you that to break barriers are actually spiritual barriers that actually uh, must be overcome. There are things that you have to deny yourself of to break barriers. So, uh, and this is, shouldn't surprise us. Jesus says you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross. But congregations are not good at denying themselves, right? And every barrier you break is a denial of one thing and an engagement in another, okay? So, for example, if, you, uh, if you're at 35, you're basically friends. You're all friends, right? So we take 35 people. So maybe, maybe like, like this side of the room would be, I guess, under 35, right? So we're, we're all friends. I mean, we'd know everybody if we went to church together. But then if we're going to break that barrier, 
and double, we're going to lose something. We're going to lose the sweet friendship that we have among one another, and we're going to let these people in. That's exactly right, exactly. All right. Because what happens is now, with 75 people, I guess probably under 75 here, with 75 people, we'll all be acquaintances, not friends like we had when we were 35 people. So we're giving up something to go from 35 to 75. Now, if we went from 75 to 125, it'd be the huge challenge. This is why, this is why most churches never get beyond 75-ish. But if we move beyond that, then what happens is we're not even acquaintances anymore. And that's why people will say things like, man, I don't want to grow because I mean, we got a sweet fellowship here. All 75 of us have a sweet fellowship. 35 of us, have, we had sweet friendship. So every stage we're denying some cherished value to get another value. And you have to persuade people that that value is worth engaging in. And so getting to 125 is the most uncommon the barrier that's broken because churches just would rather know everybody and be in that sense of community. And so, so to break barriers, there's and more than one, there's spiritual barriers that have to be overcome. And some of them are, include things like this. They have to, uh, leadership and church members must embrace Jesus. You're, you're all jotting down so many notes, and that's really nice, and I appreciate that. I'm not talking about you at this moment, so just sit there. Okay? <laughs> like me? Okay. <laughs> you're writing down everything now. You're actually transcribing the whole talk. Um, here's the deal. Two things. I'm developing a course, an a online video course, that is going to be uh, released in October on breaking barriers, including getting to two, the 200 barrier. That's what I'm going to develop this course on. So this is actually part, I wrote this stuff for you, but I'm writing it to use in this course. And so I'm sort of, sort of like, you're my test. Uh, it's actually stuff we've used. And I've had the privilege of leading five churches through the 200 barrier uh, from 35, 75, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. Two things. You, when they register, what I'm asking you, Rachel, when they register, do you have their email addresses? Okay. So when the course comes out, okay, I'm, I'm going to, any of you want to do it, we've got to charge for it, but I'll just give it free to everybody here. Um, and I'll give you these PowerPoints as well. So, because there's a lot of PowerPoint stuff I'm about to crank through. So, and I'm going to go quickly so I can cover it all and keep you happy. So, so, um, so Rachel can let you know, and we'll keep you. You'll be on the, you'll be on the Geneva. You know, they'll have you on the Geneva. You know, info list, so we can get that to you. Okay. So, leadership and church members must embrace Jesus' command to go and make disciples. Here's why: If you're going to go and make disciples, the 35 over here are almost inevitably going to become the 40, the 45, the 50. Now, I said almost inevitably because it's not always true. If you're in a town of 100 and you have 35 people, praise God. There are times God didn't want to see church go beyond 35. So I'm making some assumptions. So let's later on say, well, why don't say, so why do you think churches should get beyond 35? I'm making the assumption that you desire to grow through a 35, a 75, a 125, and a 200 barrier. Now, I could talk all day long about reasons you might not want to desire that, but let's say we do. So we have to have people have a heart and a passion for disciple-making, to go and make disciples, and, and more of them, to make more disciples. That's a spiritual barrier that has to be overcome. And to make sacrifices that lead to the changes that are needed for growth. Growth is always accompanied by change. It might be changed as voluntary, it might be changed as involuntary, it might be changed as intentional, it might be changed as unintentional. So when I was a seminary professor, I was a seminary professor for three long, painful years. I was not a very good seminary professor. Um, and so when I was, there was a church. I loved the church, and so that's where my focus was. And this church called me across, uh, 
another state, the, the school happened to border a state, and they said, Dr. Stetzer, they called me for one day, Dr. Stetzer, we'd like to have you uh, help us reach the young people in the community. Now, what I didn't know was that meant everyone other than them because they were all, I mean, the median age of the church was 68 years of age. There was 35 of them, right? They were all, well, there was one guy named Greg. He was 40. They called him the youth group. Uh, and, but, but everyone else, 35 senior adults, median age of 68 years of age. Sanctuary sat 335 in one corner over here. It was like an oxygen tank and a walker at the end of every pew. So really senior adult congregation, um, not what I, now at that time I was teaching church planting and evangelism and mission, missions at this seminary. And they said, we want you to help us uh, reach the young people. The community had changed. The 35 of them that were left didn't match the community anymore. They were older and Anglo, and the, congrega- uh, the community was uh, younger and multicultural. And so they said, we want you to do this. Well, here's what I did. I, I talked to them. We're going to have to make some sacrifices and some changes. And those sacrifices and changes were not easy to do. Now, I will tell you this. Pastors and church leaders uh, don't see uh, your senior adults as impediments to revitalization. Make them your partners in revitalization. That's really key, right? So my, my job is not to run off the old people. Now, really, once you hear that, I'm not saying that to be mean using that phrase, but that's not my job is to run off the old people. Now, I will tell you that not everybody is going to be happy with you engaging with your church in a revitalization process. But if you went into ministry to keep everybody happy, you have really misunderstood how it works. If you want everyone to like you, go sell ice cream. Uh, if, uh, but, but that's not, so, so here's the deal, is if you don't have 10% of your church mad at you, you're probably not leading them. If you have 70% of your church mad at you, calm down. Tone it back a little bit. <laughs> Throttle it down. Um, so, but you're going to have to lead them to make sacrifices that lead you to the changes needed for growth. Let me give you an example. So the church, by the way, was Rolling Fields Baptist Church. That was the name of the church that I was, had the privilege of serving. So they, they had a Wednesday night service. There's a tradition custom in some Baptists that they have Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And so, the sun, so Wednesday night was, so I keep coming over here because you're my, you're my Rolling Fields congregation. Not that your median age is 68, uh, but, but you're, you're my Rolling Fields congregation. So these people, the unwashed and unchurched masses, uh, will reach to you the massive perdition later. Um, but so here we are. So Wednesday night was a prayer meeting. But a prayer meeting was really an organ recital. Let me, let me kind of explain. Basically, they would say, pray for Aunt Sally's spleen. Uh, pray for Uncle Joe's kidney. It would be just a list of ailments. But here's what it was. And you really have to understand this from a sociocultural perspective, is Helen would stand up and say, man, would you guys just pray for so-and-so? Uh, and she'd take three, four, five minutes to say about this. So while they've been in the hospital, this is how they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. And then someone else would stand up and say the same thing. And it could literally take 30 minutes to an hour of people just kind of updating. Now you say, well, that's a waste of time. You're not even praying. You're just, it's just an update time. It is, and that's exactly what it was, and it was meaningful to the community of 35 senior adults that this is the place. This was their community center where they got to get together and tell one another how they're doing, okay? We actually quit doing that. Now, why? Well, partly because they chose to. I think, I think some of you are congregationalists by nature. I think when it comes to church revitalization, everybody's congregationalist. If you're, if you're an Anglican, you say, well, I'm gonna, the bishop says we can do no, no, no. People, people vote with their feet, and they'll, they'll go or not go. But they made a decision that there were certain things that they would do. Now, we still had a time and a season to update one another. 
there were certain things that they do because they like doing them that way that actually was not good for the mission of the church. And so they, I made them vote on everything. I made them vote so much they begged me not to vote anymore. It's like, we're going to vote on whether or not you're going to vote anymore. Um, so, so the end result was they, they made the sacrifices that, and here's the key thing, right? They made the sacrifices and they decided to make the sacrifices so that they could be the kind of church that they wanted to be. All I had to ask them, well, not all I had to ask them, I asked them again and again, is this really what you want to do? Here's what it's going to take. Let's take a look. Let's figure it out together. Then they decided to go there. I, I, a leader isn't a prodder. I don't, I'm not there pushing people over the edge. I'm saying to the people, this is what we believe God wants us to do. How are we going to get there together? I will tell you that as a church, there almost always seems to be a crisis moment to get there. Right? So, so, um, so we, had the, we had a meeting. Right? Well, let me, let me tell you the quick story. So they kept saying, we want to reach the young people. I said, okay. Well, I said yes to being their teaching pastor. And they, they, they said, uh, they, they called me preacher after that. They didn't call me Dr. Stetzer anymore. It was preacher. And so, uh, so they said, we want to we reach people. So I was like, okay, well, let's do this. Um, let's take two weeks and cancel church and, and go to other churches that are actually successfully reaching the kind of people that we say we want to reach, our neighborhood. So, and that wasn't without controversy. There was this one uh, woman, we'll call her... Uh, Alice, that's not her real name, but we'll call her that because we don't want to be distracting her real name with Stella. But Alice, um, so, so Alice um, is, she's not happy with this at all. So the church, and she says to me, preacher, she says two things. First of all, what if somebody visits the church when we're gone those two weeks? And I said, Alice, no one's visited the church for like 15 years. You think this is the week the revival starts? I didn't say it quite like that. And then she said, she said to me, if we cancel church, the devil's going to be running loose in this church. And I was like, so our 35 senior adult meeting has been holding back the prince of darkness for all this time. And if we don't show up, he's loosed and the, the seals are opened. No, I didn't say all that. Uh, but, but so they went out and visited the churches. And they came back and we had a meeting on uh, Wednesday night. Right? Meeting on Wednesday night was now a discussion in prayer time. And I said, so what'd you, what'd you think? I sent them out with clipboards. I, 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 here's the thing. I think people need knowledge. And this group of senior adults who have been in one church for all these years, I said, go out. And, and so they went. And so, you know, churches, growing churches have multiple services. They got to visit five churches in two weeks. But they'd carry their little clipboards, right? So these, these little old ladies, because mostly, um, you know, women, they live longer than us men. And they're hardier. And so they'd kind of take this, uh, take us out. I see Don Carson, the Don. Uh, anyway, um, so, so they're, they're so, so they're going their clipboards and they, and, and I sent them out little packs of five, right? And so they, they go in the sanctuary and they're kind of sitting there and I'm saying, okay, write down what's the first thing you see, what's the first words you hear, how do they sing? So they're like writing this stuff down, you know. Okay. You never seen people so focused, right? They're writing this, and then they all go to the nursery. To the, you call it a nursery here with the babies? A, a crash? A crash? A, a crash? A crash? That's like something like at Christmas time where baby Jesus was wrapped in waddling clothes. Uh, yeah. Crying room, okay. So, so they go, and so there's five little old ladies, and they go over there, and they're like, and so you know, so I had to like warn the pastors, you know, that these people were coming, and so so they came back, and I kept all the notes. I have, I still have them this day. I wrote a book on. It. I wrote a book called Comeback Churches, based on um, you know, this revitalization journey we were on, and so 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 then they they come back, and we had the Wednesday night meeting, and I said, so what'd you think? And I think it was Helen. She uh, stood up very vocal. She stood up and she said, uh, she said, preacher. 
the church has changed and nobody came and told us. And then she sits back down. <laughs> I said, Ellen, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Uh, and, and, but they all did. They were like, it was the, the strangest thing. I mean, people were, like, people were like, so they sing now? And they put the words on a screen. No. Um, so anyway, so, so we went on this, uh, this journey. And that, in that night, they said, we've got to reach the young people. We've got to reach the young people. And, and they would say, Nora would say, I think it was Nora, she would say things like, we got to go, we just got to go contemporary. And she said it like temporary. We got to go contemporary. Um, I said, Nora, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure that's a good idea. I'm not sure all of us would survive a transition to a contemporary church. Uh, and I mean, like, literally, we might lose people to physical exhaustion. I don't know what it would be. But Nora's ready to get a smoke machine, you know, and just go to this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Um, and so I, so I said, so, so, so I said, but let's not. But then Harold stood up. Now, Harold was 88 at the time. He was the chairman of deacons in this kind of stream of Baptists. Their deacons, are, they function like their elders. Um, so he stands up, and, and, and people look, and it's like Harold talking so. And he says, because um, I had drawn a chart. Because, you know, part of leadership is defining reality. And so I had drawn a chart, right? I, I won't erase all this for the sake of time. But I, I, the church was founded in 1952 by Jimmy Carter. Not that Jimmy Carter, but that would have been cool. Um, and it had been at like hundreds at one point, And I just drew this chart. And I said, all right, here's the 50s, here's the 60s, here's the 70s, here's the 80s, here's the 90s, here's where we are. And I just kind of went like that, casually trailed off. And they, they could, I mean, they can, people can read a chart. That's extinction, not that far away. So Harold stands up and he says, he says, preacher, 20 years from now, we're all going to be dead and gone. And Helen says, it ain't going to take 20 years for you, Harold. And it's like, I'm like, you can say these things, but you know, when your grandma, you know, you let your grandma say whatever your grandma wants to say. And, uh, and so he kind of, shh, he shushed her. He said, uh, 20 years from now, we're all going to be dead and gone. Um, we're, we're not, we're not going to let this church die. We'll do what it takes. And that phrase, how I kind of opened one of the chapters in Comeback Churches is, we'll do what it takes. Now, they had to get there. It was a crisis moment. And I helped them to acknowledge the reality. Here's the deal. Leadership is sometimes defining reality. This is the reality. The, this church will cease to exist in 10 years, 5 years, 50, whatever it may be, unless there's a turnaround. And just seeing this chart catches people's attention. So... They had this moment to define the new reality. And then, and then we began to pray. We just began to pray. What would that look like? How are we going to, how are we going to, so we're 35, right? Now I have the privilege of leading five churches through uh, barriers from 35 to over 200. So, so, so what, what is it that that next change would actually, would actually make, would actually be evident and real in the lives of our people? Well, a couple of things changed. First, we had to make a decision uh, that our measurements and our goals had to change. Our goals and measurements were no longer built around solely the, the comfort of our people, but the mission that Jesus sent us on. Ephesians 3.10 says, God has chosen the church to make known his manifold wisdom. So we, we made this shift, this, this new focus, and we really wanted to do this. We, how, how are we making disciples, and how are we impacting our community? How are we making disciples? How are we impacting our community? Now, there's a, none of you are in my denominational tradition, but my denominational tradition uh, is, is Baptist. I told you that I'm, I'm Baptist. 
Um, but in my certain Baptist denomination, we have two saints that we pray to and give money to every year. Uh, one of them is named Lottie Moon. One of them is named Annie Armstrong. Just have interest. Anybody heard of Lottie Moon? Anybody? You've heard of Lottie Moon. How have you heard of Lottie Moon? You're a Baptist. Are you like, what kind of Baptist? A real one. A real one? <laughs> In comparison to my kind of Baptist? All right. So you've heard of Lottie Moon. And you back there, ma'am, how have you heard of Lottie Moon? You've read about her. She's a very famous missionary, right? So, so famous missionary. So there's, a, there's an offering named after her in my denomination that every Christmas we take the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for foreign missions, now called international missions. So pretty much everyone knows who Lottie Moon is. So here's what I did with the church. I said, listen, here, if we're going to do that, if we're going to reach this community, we've got to think like missionaries. Now, thankfully, in the providence of God, we actually have a missionary that everybody knows in the church. So I said, real simply this, let's ask the question for every decision we make, WWLD, what would Lottie do? Right? And so we've heard of what would Jesus do, which is, you know, bracelets people make. And all that. We asked, what would Lottie do? How do we live on mission? Well, we want to make disciples and impact our community. You make disciples and impact our community. And so what we did is, is ultimate goal is the example of uh, to see people following Christ and living on mission. Now, now again, depending upon your church tradition, um, in the church tradition where we're from, everybody sort of wants to see people come to Christ, thinks they should, but is sort of stuck and stagnant. Now, in some traditions, part of what you have to do is actually convince people that it matters that people would come to Christ. So it sort of depends on where you are theologically as a movement. Okay? So now I came to Christ in what's called mainline Protestantism. And part of what we would have to do is the church I was in, the Episcopal church I was in, was unusual in that it was kind of driven with a passion to reach men and women for the gospel with the assumption that they were lost without the gospel. And so that may be something you might have to take a few steps back and actually help to get there. But, but at some point, you get to the place is our ultimate goal to see people following Christ and living on mission. And we're willing to sacrifice things to ultimately get to that point. Now, uh, what, what part of that is, is then there has to be a shift in the way that we think in some ways, right? So to break barriers, leadership development has to be a priority. So again, 35 senior adults, what do I have to do? I have to raise up some new leaders so we can engage some new people. Now, um, now, I want you to think in terms of, of a table, like say we have a table here, and sand. If, if we have a very small table and we pour sand on the small table, it'll make a little pile, but then the sand will start falling over the edges. Well, I'm now trying to work, and I have to restructure a stuck and stagnant church to expand the participation and, yes, the leadership so that we can accommodate, assimilate, engage new people. So you'll notice, too, that I'm now moving from spiritual questions, methodological questions, to leadership questions. It's a complicated task, breaking barriers, and you have to do those things simultaneously. You can just focus on faithfulness and have 35 people who love Jesus, and that's great. You can just focus on fruitfulness and try to grow your church, but without a clear sense of faithfulness. But one of the things we have to do is is walk, you know, chew gum at the same time. You know, we we have to do more than one thing uh, at the same at the same time, I like the way Alan Hirsch puts it, formerly of uh, of Melbourne, I believe. Um, we're perfectly designed to achieve what we are currently achieving. As a certain tree bears specific fruit, so too the organizational systems we inhabit are biased toward achieving certain outcomes. And so, so how do we how do we break that pattern with making leadership uh, development a priority? Now, here's the you have to trust me at this point. We spent all day together. 
you have to trust me that I love pastors and church leaders. I've really dedicated my life to pastors and church leaders. That's what I do full-time, is I write books for pastors and church leaders. I speak to pastors and church leaders. So you have to know I'm on your side, because I'm going to say some challenging and critical things. But I am your advocate. Um, I'm on your side. But I will tell you this. Um, most pastors and church leaders believe they're much better leaders than they actually are. And it has to do partly with kind of a faith attitude. We're trusting God for great things. Um, so to break barriers, leadership development must be a priority. And part of that is our own. And this is where self-assessment is critical for a leader to make appropriate changes. Um, if most past- See, most people don't go into pastoral ministry because they're, they're really good leaders. They go into pastoral ministry because they care about people. Great. I'm for that, right? But what happens is, is then you get into pastoral ministry and what you find is when your church is like 75 and 125, you spend a lot more time doing leadership than doing pastoral care. And that's a shift that a lot of people don't want to make. And if you don't want to make it, there's nothing wrong with being a pastor of a small church and loving and ministering and then being the parson of the community, living there in a you know, shepherding role and a shepherding model. But if, as I said earlier, we're going to make the assumption that part of our desire is to break barriers, some of those barriers we're going to, grip, going to break are going to necessitate shifts in our leadership. Now, in just a few hours, I'll take a flight from, uh, from Brisbane to Melbourne. I'm speaking down at Ridley College tomorrow, and so I'll, I'll take a flight. And, uh, and I've noticed you basically your country is like five cities with airlines between them. Uh, I've been to all five except Perth, which I believe is basically in India. Uh, and, you know, so I, you, gotta be, you can't be going there unless you're going there. So, um, so, but, but I'm going to get an airplane, and someone's going to say, the nice person is going to say, Hey, if you're on this, you know, if you're on this plane and we suddenly lose air pressure, um, oxygen masks will fall from the ceiling. And what will, what do they say right after oxygen masks fall from the ceiling? What do they say? Put on oxygen mask first. Now, why do they say such a thing? Here's why. Um, you may know this, you may not, but but what happens in a rapid decompression is actually people lose consciousness very quickly. You think, well, I can hold my breath for a minute. No, you actually have seconds in a rapid decompression. Uh, there's a very famous golfer in the United States, globally famous. His name was Payne Stewart. He was also a committed Christian. Uh, he was on a private jet, and his private jet lost a window broke, and they lost sudden decompression. Within seconds, no one got their masks on quickly enough, and the plane ended up flying for hours and then crashing, and everyone was killed because everyone was suddenly had lost consciousness. So they tell you put on your own oxygen mask first because here's what parents naturally do. I've got Caitlin right next to me. The first thing I'm going to do is take care of my kid. I'm going to lose consciousness, and then nothing's gonna, we're not going to be able to help anybody. So by doing this, she'll, if she could lose quick consciousness, I put a mask on her, she's fine. So what happens is you put on your own astronaut mask first. That's a principle of leadership that's essential for church life. If you're going to lead a church through church violation, you need to put on your own oxygen mask first, and you need to do it by becoming and continuing to become a better leader day by day. Have a self-assessment to see how you're doing as a leader. Leadership assessment, right? It's in the body is an ongoing necessity just for me and for others, right? I do it in my own life, right? When I turned 40, or let's just say when I turned 40, uh, when I turned 40, I, I surveyed uh, my... Uh, people who worked for me, people with whom I worked, and people that I worked for, friends, church members, and, and I was at a mission agency at the time, and I surveyed them, and I said, I want you to give me feedback on what I do well, what I do poorly. Um, and what I got back was a lot of nice things. You know, it was helpful for me to know some strengths. But I got back two recurring negative things. The two recurring negative things that I was, I was too sarcastic, and I didn't listen very well. And so I said, you're a bunch of idiots. 
Uh, I did not say that. Uh, I, matter of fact, I came home to my wife, and I said to her, I said, baby, do you, do you think I'm too sarcastic? And she said to me, oh, are you, oh you're, you're really not sure. Are you really, you're really actually asking me? Uh, I said, are you being sarcastic? No, she was not. Um, here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you're afraid of a leadership self-assessment because you're afraid that it might look, make you look bad, can I just say you already look a certain way to the people that you're leading? All you're simply doing is you're learning what they're seeing. Does that, does that make sense? And so by doing so, you seek to become a better leader. Now, I'm not a big fan of a lot of the leadership literature. When I wrote Comeback Churches, I really didn't want to mention uh, John Maxwell at all. Have you heard of John Maxwell? Of course, yeah. Of course, it's like the law. Uh, John Maxwell is the most popular leadership expert in the world. Not in the Christian world, in the world world. He's written one book about 17 times. Um, and, uh, and he's a friend of mine, so I say that with love and with kind of jealousy. Because every time he writes that same book, people buy 12 million copies. And I'm like, people, buy, I'm writing different books. You could buy mine. Uh, so, but, but I kind of was in a season where I was kind of Maxwelled out. The world was too Maxwellian for me. Um, and so... So I did come back churches, and we really didn't want leadership. You know, we didn't want to use any cliches. Everything rises and falls on leadership. You can't have the dream unless you have the team. You know, all the John Maxwell rhyming stuff. He should be a rapper. Um, but but what, what we found was quite clear. Um, everything rises and falls on leadership. As a matter of fact, we studied 324 churches in that book that had experienced, after a protracted period of stagnation or decline, that had experienced a sudden, not sudden, an ongoing multi-year growth. Couldn't be just one year, but multiple years of growth. Um, You know, we found the key issue was either there was a change in leader or there was a change in the leader. Does that make sense? Um, I I can't underestimate the import of of pastoral leadership in breaking barriers for church growth. So wait, it's a team thing. It is a team thing. That's what good leaders do. They build teams and they create esprit de corps and they, and they bring together this communitas and you're in this together. But what we found is leadership development has to be a priority. Matter of fact, if you're going to lead your church through barriers, there's probably two groups of people you need to spend more time with. And because I'm a Baptist, they're alliterated. Um, they are leaders and the lost. You probably need to spend more time raising up leaders and more time engaging the lost. So leadership development has to be accompanied by, by leadership development. Number four, to break barriers, the church must regain its missionary mentality. If your job, perceived job, is to keep the customers happy, then the customers will demand more. Uh, the customers will, um, will really never be satisfied, but, but they might get marginally acceptable where you are and let you sort of focus on other things. But basically... Too many churches are filled with customers of the religious goods and services distributed there. And what I want to encourage you to consider is how do you move from customers to co-laborers? That little church, that little rolling fields, what we had to do to break the 35 barrier, we had to really, and we went, we went from 35 to 125 to, uh, and broke through that barrier. I stayed there about two years. We grew from 35 to about 175 or so. Um, so, and I, I, I reckon, I should always say, I do recognize that, that that would be a very different pace and a very different size in an Australian context. I, I do know that, and that's why I try not to say numbers, and I, 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 even there, I, after, as I said it, I said, I don't want to mention the numbers, but I did, because I recognize that it's a, it's a different scale. You have to scale accordingly to the Australian cultural context. Where I'm planting a church in Nashville right now is like taking candy from a baby. Uh, it's not hard to plant a church in Nashville. 
Uh, it's hard to plant a church in Sydney. It's, you know, it's hard to plant a church uh, in Darwin. Um, and so, but, but we've got to move people from consumers to co-laborers, get them focused less on maintenance of the structure and the organization of the building and more focused on the mission, but ultimately got to move from being self to other-centered. And this is the hardest thing of all. Now, I will tell you that asking a bunch of people of any age not to worry about themselves is hard. Asking a group of senior adults to say, let's not worry about what we like and prefer is even harder. But that's what ultimately you may have to do. Most of the churches that are stuck and stagnant are going to be disproportionately older. In our case, it was, it was dis- very disproportionately older. But I will tell you, when you appeal well and you say to Martha, Martha, I, I totally get it. I totally get that this is different than what you prefer. But I'd like to be the kind of church that your kids and your grandkids want to go to. See, the problem is, without intervention, churches choose their traditions over their children almost every time. Without intervention, churches choose their tradition over their children almost every time. So I wanted to say to them, hey, what would it look like to be the kind of church your kids and grandkids or great-grandkids would want to go to? And they made some decisions, some shifts that were necessary here along the way. I don't have time to tell you all of them. Uh, and again, I don't, I'm not much of a salesman. I don't bring books or anything of that sort. But, but I tell a lot of the story online. If you just want to Google it, Stetzer, Comeback Churches, you'll, you'll see more. But it's that shifts really become key. Um, number, number five, to break barriers, leaders must teach church members to form um, intentional relationships. Okay, let's remember the cherished values we're talking about. When we were 35, we are all friends, right? Then we let in these people. And now we're all acquaintances. So we've lost the cherished value. Okay, now here's the thing. If we're going to continue to 125, we're not even going to be all acquaintances anymore. And so what we have to do is teach people that the way we connect with other people changes with the size of our congregation. So in other words, it's not, let me give you an example. So our church now is, um, is, is I'll say, it's, it's hundreds of people. So our church now is hundreds of people. Now, I started this church three years ago in my living room uh, that you saw. And um, the church was five people and then ten people. And now it's hundreds of people. And so what's the, what's the distinction and the difference? Well, here's the deal. Um, I don't, because I'm a volunteer at the church. I have 10 hours a week to volunteer at my church. I'm just, I'm just like, a lay, I'm like a lay person who volunteers. That's all I do is I have 10 hours a week. And, and I have to prepare a message. I preach three out of four Sundays. Uh, I meet with the staff every week. And I lead a small group in my home. So that's, I mean, so I'm talking, I, t- I spend three hours a week working on a sermon. And, I, and you're thinking, those are some bad sermons. No, nah, I, just, I just preach Tim Keller's stuff. Um, so I actually don't. Uh, I do have a research team that helps me. Um, but but so, so, so I've got, when I walk in church, like, like this, uh, Jim, Jimmy, Jimmy is the full-time pastor. He's the, we call him the executive pastor, but he, he's functionally the pastor, and I'm the teaching pastor. Uh, and, and I will tell you that, that, um, that I don't know people in that church. And one of the things I've noticed is, is again, and if I, can, if I can tell you this without... I recognize the propensity that when Americans talk about numbers, it's, it's intended to impress, and that's not what I'm trying to do here. Um, so I'm, I pastor my church, but I'm also the teaching pastor at another church in another state, which I know is weird. But so eight times a year, I fly down to Miami, um, and, I, and I preach at a church that has, uh, has 10,000 people that attend on a weekend. It's called Christ Fellowships. So it's a small, struggling church. Um, and it's video venue, and it's, it's, it's all over South Florida, about 40% Anglo, the rest, just this beautiful multicultural milieu, lots of Cubans, uh, uh, you know, it's Miami's very disproportionately Cuban. Okay, so, so here's what I want to say to you. I want you not to miss this. My church of, of you know, a few hundred in, that I pastor 
and the church where I teaching pastor. On the Sundays, I'm not preaching at my church. I preach at that church. I, I know about the same number of people in each church. Now, here's the deal. The difference is, in both church, relationships, when you pass 125, have to be taken through an intentional, systemic approach to place people in organized relationships. And just that phrase, for some of you, you hate that sentence. And that's why your church could be 75 and you'll be happy. And there's nothing wrong with being 75 or 35. All friends or 75, all acquaintances. But to be 125 or 200, you have to make a shift and you have to tell people why you should make that shift. And I want to have people to say, I want to see that in you impart some spiritual gift and mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want to see that. But the only way I see that when the church grows 125. Now, here's the deal. I know I've lost a bunch of you in the room. You said, Ed, that sounds terrible. I just don't want to do that. And I totally get it. And I'm not mad at you for thinking that. But what I would say to you is you are making a decision with your philosophy of relationship to be a church of under 100. That is not a bad or a sinful decision, but a decision that I've chosen not to make. And so now because I, I, I'm a relation, I want to lead through relationship. But I will tell you at the church I pastor at the churches I pastor now, I know it's weird to pastor two churches, but at the churches I pastor now, I don't lead through relationship. We lead through systems that produce meaningful relationships. We lead through systems that produce meaningful relationships. Now, I will tell you that the people in our church are very well cared for. Both churches, but let me talk about Grace Church, my church. People in my church are very well cared for. We have, I, I've received, now, I, the, the small group I'm involved with, I've received, since I've been here, two emails tonight about how we're ministering to someone in our small group that right now has a need that most of our church will know nothing about, but the people in our small group are mobilizing right now. I have an apprentice leader in the small group. He's taking it. We're running with it. Uh, that, that Right now. That right now, needs are being met. But people in the church as a whole will not know about those needs. So you've got to find a way to teach members to form intentional relationships. The way I phrase that is help people move from sitting in rows to sitting in circles to provoking one another to love and good deed. That's Hebrews 10.24. So they might live as agents of God's mission. So to make those intentional relationships. Number five is still, how do you do this? Create comfortable, small, relational environments is key to breaking barriers. Here's, now, I don't want you to miss this, right? Okay? Remember, remember us, the 35 that loved Jesus, and then these godless people came along? You know what we are? We are we're right there. We're a comfortable, safe, relational environment. That's what we are. If you do nothing at 35, you are what I just said. But if you want to move through 75, now it's, now it's, now it's acquaintances. And, and if you want to move to 125, now it's we don't even know everybody anymore. So don't <laughs> curse the darkness, light a candle. Uh, well, we don't know each other anymore. No, no, no. Let's know each other better. As the church gets larger, the church gets smaller. And then what happens is we evangelize naturally through relationships rather than this hit-and-run approach. We actually know people. We're in community with people. Uh, we prioritize the movement of people into relational spaces through small groups where relationships uh, grow more easily. Now, I wrote a book. My most recent book is called Transformational Groups, which is based on the largest study of its kind ever of, of groups. We'd... Uh, uh, it's, again, it's a, it's a U.S.-Canadian study, and so I'm, I'm, I'm quite aware, again, that it's different here. Would love to and be happy to, uh, if someone wants to do research here, to let you share our questions and compare, et cetera. Et cetera. We, we, we do it ourselves, um, but, but a key, key issue. Okay, so number six, to break barriers, the church must develop as a biblical community, right? So I've quoted Hebrews 10.24 a couple of times. Let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some eventually do, but encouraging one another even more as you see the day drawing near. 
Um, look at the first part. Be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. I quote the KJV, right? The King James Version is, is to provoke one another to love and good deeds. I like the KJV. Good enough for Jesus, good enough for us. To provoke one another to love and good deeds. Um, and to develop as a, as a biblical community. And I will tell you that small groups play an unappreciated role, underappreciated role in the ministry of churches that break barriers. Because a church of 35 is a small group, a large one. A church of 75 has probably got two or three informal small groups. But in addition to kind of the Bible say, small groups are where people are ministered to and have opportunities to minister. Here's why. People sit in our small group, um, and there, we act, what we do is we do what we call one for one. Um, one is the first thing is we have a time of community building, fellowship. We might, um, we might watch a Super Bowl party together, um, which is like the World Cup. You know what the Super Bowl is. I'm just being silly. What's, a, what's the equivalent of the Super Bowl here? Rugby? Okay. I got to tell you, rugby, is that what you call rugby? That, that looks like a real sport. I do not want to play that game. I mean, dude, they, there's no pads. That's crazy. Someone's going to get hurt. Don't you people know people are going to get hurt? That's part of it. <laughs> I'm like, gee whiz. Um, it's exactly. Um, so, so we do, like, the, so the one is some sort of community thing together. Then four, we do four weeks together of a study. We study the gospel project, actually, is what we do. And then, uh, and then one is we do, so one for one. The second one is a submission project. We engage a submission project. That is a, that is a group action based on our ongoing group uh, mission commitment. So, so, for example, we might serve at the Samaritan's house, uh, Samaritan house, and, but our people are engaged in the Samaritan house um, all throughout the month. So we actually look at one another and say, so who's, who's, doing, who's doing this? Who's going to the Samaritan house this week? Who's doing this? So we're actually uh, using our small groups not just as kind of a repository of relationship, but as, a, as an incubator for mission. Does that make sense? Um, and so, and then church staff and volunteer leadership must lead by example by being in a small group. You need to be uh, in small community. Uh, to break barriers, sometimes it's necessary to use space creatively. Um, I mentioned I was at, at St. Philip's York Street Churchill Garrison Church of the Living God number four in Sydney. Um, uh, they're, they're now united with Garrison Church. There's four names. Um, and they have, they have what we in the United States would call a terrible facility. Uh, now, it's in the middle. It's 90, 90 plus million dollars in property. Um, so it's a pretty good location, right? So, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's terrible in so many ways. First, uh, when you go in and you see Justin's office uh, inside the church, it's, it's just basically where the, where the, uh, the, uh, the sacristy, sacristy is, um, which he turned into a little office. And he's got a picture on the wall of a parking ticket. And I, I, so I asked him, why do you have a parking ticket? So I was here, like kind of a, my tradition we call it, in view of a call, I was here to consider coming here, and they were recruiting me, telling me how great things are going to be, and this is awesome, and I walk out, and there's a parking ticket on my car. So I decided to frame it because everyone who comes to our church always gets a parking ticket. So they have no parking, uh, very little parking. Uh, you have to use public transit, et cetera, et cetera. There's space. They have nothing. I mean, there's no, there's no education space and, um, in, a, in a helpful way. You just have to find a way to, to, to deal with this creatively. Now, a couple of things. We, we have this thing called the 80% rule. The 80% rule is that if, the, if that you're 80% filled, you're, you're filled, um, you're full. So I don't know how many seats this has, but, but we were pretty full when the students were here this morning, and now we have a little more spaced out. This is about as full, we can do a few more, as you want your church to feel. 
See, but, yeah, but there's all these open seats, yeah. But nobody wants to see, uh, sit shoulder to shoulder, right? This is, this, is, this, is not, you know, this is not Qantas Airlines where we all just kind of pack in like sardines. Um, so 80% rule. So 80% rule, you're full. So you might find some ways, right? Um, and another thing, most cities, 20% of the population can't attend a Sunday morning worship gathering due to work uh, in most urban centers. Um, and so you might want to consider ways to, to, to offer ministries, to adjust things, to use your space uh, more creatively and more effectively. Uh, number eight is to break barriers, remind people uh, of the vision to help them break through the barriers. I, I will tell you, I, I've never found a church break through the barriers simply because someone suggested it. They had to get a vision for something better, for something better. So, so back to Rolling Fields. So the last day I was there, two years, the last day I was there, Harold came up to me. He's two years older, you know, and, and uh, he's still a tough guy. We became friends. So the last day that I'm there, we're going to be, uh, I'm going to be going to the mission board. I'm going to this mission agency uh, in another city. I'm leaving the seminary, I'm moving about four hours away. So they plan a little going away party for me. And there's a little poster that says, uh, you know, a little, little, poster, little banner that says, you know, thank you, you know, preacher, whatever it may be. And it's in the basement of the church. So I'm going down. We finished services. I shook a few hands, um, kissed a few babies. And, uh, and I'm going downstairs to the fellowship hall. And as I walk down the stairs, Harold meets me in the stairwell. And he, he actually, he actually comes, comes up to me. And I'm sorry, I'm going to physically assault you. just want to pre-warn you. And he comes up to me, and he goes, and he just pokes me, like, not, not, I mean, like, how? You know, and I'm, I'm not exactly, uh, you know, athletic. Um, so, so, but, but, and he, and he, but he's, and he's like 90 years old at this time. I'm like, I could break your hip right now, Harold. Don't mess with me. So he, uh, he pokes me in the chest, and he looks me in the eye, and he says, I still don't like the music. <laughs> and I'm like, Harold, poster, downstairs. Thank you, Ed Stetzer. We're leaving. Um, you were the one who suggested all this. And he says, and the kids, they're breaking everything in this church. He's still got my finger, his finger in my chest. Kids are breaking everything. It's true. Because, you know, if you're in an older church, um, you've got all these classrooms in the church, or maybe a few classrooms in the church. In the corner of those classrooms, there's a table. It's not a full table. It's a half table because the front of it folds down. And it's got a white uh, blanket on it or a white sort of tablecloth on it. And on that, there's a little vase, a vase, uh, full of flowers, plastic flowers, and that's what's in your church. Some of you are smiling and nodding right now because you're like, you think, how did he know? That's well, a power I have. Um, <laughs> but if you have kids, the table's still there, the white tablecloth's still there, but there's a dust ring where the vase used to be because they knocked it over because kids break stuff, right? So he's standing there, and he says to me, Preacher, um, I still don't like the music. The kids are breaking everything. I'm looking at him. I'm, really, I'm a little perplexed, and I'm looking at him in the eyes, and I see tears in his eyes. And he says, but, but it was worth it all. Because I had the privilege of, of baptizing his, uh, his uh, daughter-in-law and seeing his son get engaged back in church life with his grandkids. And um, I always get, I love that, that church. I love Harold. He's, yeah. um, so so for, for him, I, we just had to go back to the vision over and over. Why are we doing these things? Not because they're cool, not because they're trendy. Actually, I don't think we define our church as cool. It was different. It never became contemporary, more of a blended sort of feel, certainly shifted more to a contemporary side, um, but, 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 not, but not out there by any stretch of the matter. No smoke machine, um, you know, nothing, no, no laser lights, um, you know, nothing, nothing like that. Um, but I just had to keep reminding them of Jesus, the gospel, and the mission. It's not about us. And I said, let's look to a future that honors God, reaches people, and involves them. I went there to throw them to the side. I will tell you that Alice left. Alice left mad. 
Uh, she, she's still torturing the pastor of another church in town who welcomed her in with open arms, and she very quickly became critical of him. Um, but again, what we want to do is actually see that real change. Now, I've got a couple minutes left, and I want to open it for questions because I want to be done right at, uh, right at 2.30. Um, but I want to show you a little construct that I'm working on for this based on the experience and some research we're actually doing of, of how to break these barriers that has to do with leadership. Now, as you see, I just went eight things that weren't leaders. Well, one of them was leadership. But let me talk to you about structurally what this might look like. Okay. And it's going to ultimately lead to breaking the 200 barrier. So, um, so if you're going to move through 35, you'll typically have uh, one leader, but you might have to raise up three people who work, who work with you as a leader. It might be someone to lead the music, might be someone to uh, work with the kids, might whatever. This is going to break through. Now, if it's just remember, it's just us. We don't really need any of that. We can say, hey, would you would you watch the kid? Would you would you do? Would you? But then we say we're going to, we're going to move beyond. We're going to move through this. So I'm going to we're going to ask you to be in charge of the worship ministry. I'm going to ask you to be in charge of the children's ministry. I'm going to ask you to be in charge of helping us with evangelism in small groups. Just the nature of doing that expands the leadership table so more sand can go on the table without falling off and over the edge. So, but it doesn't stop there. And this is where it gets hard, right? So most of you say, well, we could do that. But then we're going to break the 75 barrier. Now I need to have three leaders. Three people are actually working with seven people who are doing. Now you say, well, the leaders don't do. Of course they do. Okay, but, but just stay with me. There's a different kind of thing between a volunteer who does something and someone who leads the volunteers who do something, right? You, you, right? So, so, so now, back to here, now, now it's all of us. So now I'm going to say I need you to be in charge of the small groups. We're going to have five or six small groups. You're going to be in charge of those small groups, so you're not a leader with me. And I need you to be in charge of the children's ministry. We've got five or six people now volunteering to work with kids. I need you to be in charge of whatever else. And so you're leaders. And now I need you, 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 and you to commit to be in the children's ministry. I need you, 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 and you to commit to be small group leaders. Now what we've done is, is we actually have three leaders, of which one typically a vocational pastor would be, but now we've got, so now we've got 10 people to pass through the 75 barrier, but then the church gets larger, and this is where it gets hard. You're going to break the 125 barrier. You need to be a leader of leaders, and you need a leader of leaders. So now all of a sudden, I need someone who can say, you know what, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to put you in charge. I'm going to LT, you're a good guy. I like you. I like you. So you're going to be in charge, but you're going to be in charge of the people who are in charge of the small groups. You're going to be in charge of the people who are in charge of the student ministry. And then what happens? Just two people, right? So now I have to become not just a leader, but a leader of leaders. And if I'm one of the two, I'm multiplying as another leader of leaders. And this is why most pastors never get past this. And, and again, I'm not being mean because I love pastors. Most pastors can't raise up leaders of leaders because they don't think systemically, they think relationally. If you're going to go through 125, you're going to start thinking systemically and relationally. It's not like, okay, now I may no longer speak to you because we are 125. You're dead to me. Uh, <laughs> you call, make an appointment and perhaps I will talk to you. Um, I'm kind of a big deal. I have many leather-bound books and my office smells of rich mahogany. Uh, no, no, not at all, not at all. But you're now having relational engagement with your leaders, with your leaders of leaders, with your leaders and with the workers. And, and, and so for me, I, I will tell you this, I don't know. Now, again, my situation is very unusual. Even for a church of my size, I would normally know much more people, but I'm just a volunteer. But I don't know all the small group leaders in our church. I don't know people on the key. We have, we have three. We have more than one campus. So we have a leadership team on each campus, and then we have a central leadership team. I don't know people on the leadership teams on the campus. 
and I'm their pastor. Say, so you're a terrible pastor. Yes, I am. But we've kind of gone in with the understanding that basically I had 10 hours a week to volunteer. So you can't do that. Now, but here's the deal. When your church gets larger, you have to make that decision that that's okay. And how are you going to break through the 200 barrier? We're going to need about eight leaders of leaders, 25 leaders who are working with people and teams of workers. And, and you'll notice that the percentage actually increases over time because larger churches take more people involved and engaged in leadership for success actually to be there for organizational clarity and organizational stability. So this is part of what we're going to do in this, in this seminar that is going to develop. It's a, it's a seminar, like I said, I'm going to give it to you. Uh, it sounds like when people say I'm going to give it to you, it sounds like there's like a scheme involved. There's really not a scheme involved. Uh, I'm going to give it to you, and you can watch the videos, and we'll, we'll have a lot more about this there. So I've kind of kind of walked through what I wanted to cover, but I, I've left nine minutes for your Q&A. I see some of you taking pictures, again, without my permission. Uh, but go ahead. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> and let me turn it back over to Scott and, uh, and LT, the rapper. Is, is, is hip-hop big in Australia? Yeah. Uh-huh. You at least listen to Lecrae, right? All right, because Lecrae, I knew Lecrae before Lecrae was Lecrae, and I love Lecrae. Yeah. It, um, uh, Bible not Ben the Pentecostal, but another no. Ben. What church? Not, not often being confused. Yeah, what's your church? Oh, so you don't even like Pentecostals. All right, go ahead. I don't know anything about your church. I'm just kidding. All right, Ben, go ahead. Um, so a lot of this I guess, uh, maybe I'm hearing you talk about how to go from a monolithic group into then moving to the next barrier, especially we're smaller at 80-month-old church plant. Um, as we integrate new people in who aren't in the vision and quickly, um, which seems to have been happening lately, how do you... Can you talk about speed of moving through those barriers, especially when people, you're not just talking one barrier necessarily or even through with them all on the same page to begin with? Yeah. You know, here, here's a place, Ben, where, where um, I struggle to answer the question in your context. Um, I think that principles of sociocultural relationships, engagements, the, what we call span of relationships are true across the English-speaking Western world. I'm a little bit hesitant to say this is the speed. Because I'll tell you, um, if I tell you what happened in my church, I think it would probably demoralize you know, a lot of you because we can quickly move. And then you're like, well, I wish we could do that. Well, you can't. So let, let me ask you, how, how, you've had this 18 months, you said. You said 18, 18 months, 18. Okay, so I, I, I wasn't sure if that was 80 or 18, but it's so 18 months. Um, and and what's, how many people attend on a weekly basis now? Um, probably 35. But since Easter, we probably added another 12 adults. Cool. That's good. So, so you know, in the, in the States, that would be actually not an unreasonable pace. The typical church in the United States and Canada, the church plant, doesn't break 80 until the fourth year. So, so I know you go to these conferences, and, you know, all the speakers who go to conferences have, like, freakishly abnormal success rates. So one guy, you say, you know, we just started preaching through Leviticus, and 1,000 people came. Yeah, right. Uh, 900 of them from the same church that sent you out, but that's another story for another day. Um, so, so what I would say is, is, um, is that's not, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's decent pace and, and growth. Um, so what I would say is, is I don't think it would be atypical in a Western English-speaking con- context to take a year or so to get to the 35. And I would say in church planting, 35 is actually the hardest barrier to pass. Because what do you, I mean, why do I want to come to your church? So you're like meeting in this pub, and I don't know you, and you're like creepy looking. And uh, not you, I'm just saying others, uh, but the beard, give it a little chance, it'll grow in. Uh, 
but so 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 that's kind of the hardest. So you might you might bang away at 35 for a year or two sometimes in a typical church plant. Some ways to get through that more quickly, uh, but it's hard. So I, I I wouldn't say I wouldn't be bothered if it took a year or two to get through each of those stages numerically. Uh, I wouldn't be freaked out as long as I'm seeing forward growth and progress. But again. Uh, the, the the Sunshine Coast is different than, than Adelaide, you know, and so Adelaide's different than Perth, and Ed is from none of those places and is not an expert in any of those places. If all goes well, I think, I don't know if we're there yet, but Scott and I are very close to finalizing that we'll actually include Australia in a research project that includes the U.S., Canada, and, and, and we think the U.K., and Australia, that will ask some of those questions about pace, effectiveness, what does better, what does worse, what leads to survivability and health. And so we'll have this global English-speaking world uh, research project, except the New, New Zealand. We're not including New Zealand. Not because we don't like them, but because we just don't have the connections that are there. And we may not include Tasmania because we don't like them. Uh, and so, but, so, so we may know more about that soon to come. So I'm hesitant, and I hope you hear that in the spirit offered. I want to be able to say this is what you should do but it's just different. You're right here. Sorry about the Tassie comment. Uh, when you're talking about uh, church growth, yeah. um, are you including in their transfer growth of people leaving uh, the church, coming to the church? Or are we talking to you no, no, I'm talking, I'm talking both. Um, I, there's no church plant that you will, I will probably be involved with that doesn't include a substantial percentage of conversion growth. There are people who are sort of re-energized in their faith. Um, every church says they target unchurched people, but still the majority of people who will come to your church are not really lost unchurched people. Now, I've had the privilege. I baptized two-thirds of the adult attendees at the church, one church I planted in Erie, Pennsylvania. We had a great run of it. God was doing great things. Baptized 51 people on one day. But in our tradition, we, we, we also we baptize Presbyterians later when they kind of get right with the Lord and want to get their <laughs> and they want to get their baptism on the right side of their conversion. But that's another story uh, for another day that I shouldn't say at a Presbyterian college. Um, but so, but I would say of converts, probably in, the, in that church was was really just we had a great harvest of was probably forty percent converts. I don't know many churches. And you know, even we're talking about evangelizing into existence, you need a team with you to evangelize into existence. A whole lot of churches, and those be transfer people. Good, and I hope you know. You know, Scott. Scott, I, I wish you would answer more, because if use Scott as a resource, Scott really knows church planning. I know the name Geneva Push sort of screams a certain theological position that is subtle as a brick through your window. Um, <laughs> And, but I would say Scott has, you know, he's working with ACC churches. He's working uh, with a couple of Salvation Army guys, Vineyard guys. And so Scott, we, we work with Scott you know, through our research as well. We're big fans of Scott. And we're, you know, we work more broadly evangelical. But so does he. The fact that the name of the organization is Geneva Push should not preclude you from relying and looking to him as really a solid bloke in this whole church planning thing. So good. Somebody else. Thanks, Ed Ross from Southside Presbyterian Church. Um, you spoke a lot about the importance of small groups. Say in your church, uh, eight new people turn up, would you be more inclined to integrate them, or spread them out into existing groups, or just form their own group setting, form their own cult? That's a great question. Um, and, and we actually, we, I never thought about it in that way, but we do have a plan. So what we, we do is if they came with somebody, they go with somebody. So, so in other words, people bring their friends, and that's, and that's easy. They try to get into those small groups. But what we do is we actually we have a process, which I haven't really gone through, but we have a process that we stair-step people through deeper levels of commitment. So after church one Sunday, we have a church chat. After the church chat, we have kind of a newcomer's inquiries conversation, small group that might be two or three weeks. And then a lot of times that group becomes a small group of its own. So I would say most of the time the eight people will end up in a new group of their own that has a more natural 
new feel to it that they're connected with. Okay, we've got time for one more question. We do want to finish at 2.30. Which would be 52 seconds from now, so good luck with that. Last question, Scott. Scott, may, don't make this a bad question, bro. Um, earlier you talked about discipleship and now talking about small groups. Um, to do the discipleship as, a, as effectively as what you described earlier, that we're really in the Word, in the word. are small groups environment the best environment for that? I, I, when you say the best environment, I think they're among the best environments for that. Uh, I also think one-on-one relational stuff is actually very, very key. But let me show you very quickly um, why I think that to be the case. And I, can, I think I can evidence that statistically um, and biblically, but we'll just focus on statistics, and then I'll feel bad about the fact that I chose to use stats over the Bible in my final answer. Um, but, but so if you look at these numbers, again, I, I briefly put one up there. Every single characteristic is statistically significantly better when you're in a group versus when you're not in a group. Every single stat is statistically significantly better, including theological belief, including using my spiritual gift. I didn't include it, including tithing, including uh, all these things. Right Throughout the day, I find myself thinking about biblical truths. Look at the difference. Uh, you know, theologically. You know, can, can you know, find eternal life through religions outside of Christianity? Look at the difference that are there. Uh, spiritual matters do not tend to come as an oral part of my conversation. So I am convinced. Now, the obvious question is, well, well what about one-on-one relationships? And I, and I, I, I totally, I, I actually think that one-on-one relationships would probably be better and a part of that. But it's not, churches in the Western English-speaking world have not been able to sustain one-on-one mentoring relationships over a long period of time where small groups they have been. So in the Western English-speaking world, I believe small groups are a undiscovered and untapped key to the relational kind of connection that leads to more in-depth discipleship.